Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, Australia's Me Too movement erupted in the National Parliament this year. In the electrifying quarterly essay, Australia's The Reckoning, Jess Hill, the acclaimed author of See What You Made Me Do, traces the meaning of those events and what could happen next. What are the politics of rage? What couldn't Scott Morrison see? And what hope is there of real progress and accountability? Jess Hill will be in conversation with Michael Bradley. Before we start, a quick reminder, as this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there's been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. And now, here's the host of the event, Readings Programming Manager, Christine Gordon. My name's Christine Gordon, and I'm the Programming Manager of Readings. At the moment, I'm speaking from the Kulin Nation, and while I'm reflecting on how important it is that we're all here to listen and to learn, I reckon we need to take some time out of our busy day to use that type of reckoning, if you don't mind me saying yes, that type of reckoning, to acknowledge that wherever we are in Australia, we're living on land that's not ours. We're living on land that's not been ceded. And it seems to me here in 2021, especially when we're in this crowd of learners and listeners, that we should all make a commitment to our First Nations people that we are going to listen to their songlines, that we're going to learn from their stories, and that we're going to take that learning and that listening into the way that we live and we're going to care for country. And I'm very fortunate that in my role I can actually make that commitment easily and I hope that you join me in doing so as well. I want to introduce you to someone who's been listening for a long time. In fact, he's made it his life's work to do so. He's a lawyer, but let's not hold that against him. He's also an activist and he's an author. And, of course, of the sweetest of sweet scenarios, Michael met Jess at a March for Equality march. Can you imagine that? Like, is there a greater story than two activists getting up there and understanding that they're all fighting for the same cause? Michael's book, System Failure, talks along the same sort of themes as Jess, but it's him tonight that we'll be asking Jess the questions about her latest quarterly essay and we are delighted to have them both here with us tonight. (gasps) Over to you. The applause is being heard. I can hear it. Michael, take over. Great. Thank you, Christine. And uh, what a pleasure to be here and, and what a joy to have the opportunity to interrogate Jess Hill, who is also my hero. This is what we're talking about, The Reckoning, Jess's quarterly essay just released, which I sat down and read cover to cover immediately. It's an extraordinary work and I think, you know, will be looked back on as sort of the definitive document of the Me Too movement. Jess, of course, is already well-established and renowned author and filmmaker, I think one of Australia's most powerful voices on the subject matter of violence against women. So, um, so we're very honoured to have her here, and and uh, and I've got lots of questions. I want to start with where you started the the essay, which is with Scott Morrison in in March 
of this year on what you describe as his road to Damascus. In March, he said that Australian women are overlooked and talked over by men, marginalised, belittled, diminished and objectified. Whether this is unconscious deafness or blindness or whether it is willful malevolence that is behind all of this, it must be acknowledged, it must be called out and it must stop. That was Scott in March. Last week, as we all know, one of the government backbenchers, Bridget Archer, crossed the floor in Parliament in relation to the Anti-Corruption Commission Bill and voted against her own party. And she's publicly related how she was lured into Josh Frydenberg's office for a comforting chat and then manipulated by him into going to directly to Scott Morrison's office where she was ambushed by the two of them along with Maurice Payne. And she made it, has made, had made it clear that she wasn't ready for that and that she then said she then spent the first half of that meeting crying and apologising. Scott's comment about that interaction was that it was very positive and encouraging, that uh, Bridget and I are close colleagues and we have a very good friendship and I was pleased to be there to support her. It was a very warm and supportive meeting. She's a close friend and colleague and I wanted to ensure that she was being supported, obviously referring to her consistently as Bridget. How far have we come, really? Well, to go back to that original, uh, the way that you introduced it um, and Scott Morrison being on the road to Damascus, it's sort of like being on the road to Damascus, pretending that you've met Jesus just so that you can become the head of the Christian church. That speech that he gave that I talk about in the introduction, which was supposed to be, I guess, this moment, it was like, I have understood, I've listened to you, everything that you've been through, um, and I want to help. I'm here to help. And it sounded persuasive, I think, to the untrained ear. But then, of course, as we know, later in that speech, he then falsely levelled an accusation against who we found to be Samantha Maiden, uh, that she had um, harassed someone in a, in a woman's toilet and started giving veiled threats to the journalists that were present. And I think that the parallels between that and and the Bridget Archer um, incident is that there's the, the appearance, the appearance is managed very closely, but the the actual content is vastly different and there's this gigantic gulf between the two. And what I find fascinating about Bridget Archer is that, you know, interestingly, she was the first female Liberal MP to say that she was going to go to the march, the Women's March for Justice. She was a child sexual abuse survivor. She comes from Tasmania. You know, I don't know whether proximity to Grace um, has influenced her this year, but she'd already had to bite down on so much of what had happened. And it's like this felt like the last straw where she was just not willing, she was not willing to let him control the narrative. And somebody who's survived childhood trauma is used to someone else controlling the narrative. I think a lot of the drive behind Me Too has been about reclaiming the narrative. That always, that hasn't always been successful, but it's really been about survivors saying, like, I'm going to disclose as often as possible on my own terms and I'm going to have some level of control over, over, over what I say and what I don't say. So 
it's a very powerful thing that she's done. It's a it's a risky thing she's done. She's done it very much at her own peril and it's yet to be seen what kind of blowback there's going to be for her. None of this is done without risk, even four years into the Me Too era where we apparently are supportive of women who tell the truth. <laughs> but it's powerful because women in Scott's party if we're using first names, um, <laughs> women in his party, women in the press gallery particularly, just aren't being hoodwinked anymore. And they are seeing Scott Morrison for who he is as someone who is trying to spin and manage a situation that is unspinnable. Yeah, it's interesting because he was up again today giving pretty much the same speech as he gave in March in response to Kate Jenkins' report. And, you know, he was saying it's appalling and unacceptable and it doesn't matter who you are and it's not good enough. And the review paints, it's not a damning picture of Parliament. It's, it you know, she's done everything but describe it as a sordid cesspit that you know, really ought to be burnt to the ground because one in three people in that building say they've been the victims of sexual harassment at least. So, yes, you know, I agree with you. You know, female politicians are increasingly being prepared to, you know, speak up and, and yes, certainly, you know, Bridget Archer's move is a really radical one in, in the context. And, you know, female press gallery journalists are jacking up more and more and, and refusing to accept the spin. At that level of leadership, though, is any of this sinking in? At I, Morrison's level? Yeah, and the people around him. I don't think so. I mean, who can know the inner workings of someone like Scott Morrison or, or the people who surround him? Um, that's that is a matter for them. But I think that when we when we look at their actions over and over again, they're just pretty clear that the issue of women's safety, of gender, of equality, just holds no value for them. It's it's not interesting. It's not something that they, well, certainly not something they're going to burn political capital to pursue, but it, they won't even use the political capital they've got. You know, we've had like six years of a very acute conversation about violence. There was more political capital, unfortunately, as so often happens, created by the murders of Hannah Clark and her three kids. There have been watershed moment after watershed moment over the last few years that could have been seized upon, and they're not. And, and the reason they're not is because those constituents aren't interesting to Scott Morrison and the people he's elevated. And it's not to say that they will do nothing, you know, like they've adopted some of the respect at work recommendations. There is some work being done. The child abuse um, prevention strategy, according to people who know, is, is quite a good one, you know. Uh, when you get to see the national plan for violence against women and children. But, you know, it's not that no work is being done. It's just that we still remain at the crumb level, you know. It's like, hmm, let's pick out some tasty morsels from the Respect at Work inquiry that won't require us to do anything radical or, or tick off any of the um, employers that we want to keep on side. But we'll just do bits and pieces, only enough so that, we get marginal improvements, maybe, but nothing so radical that it will actually shift the paradigm. And 
I remember actually when I was, I think I was speaking to Josh Bornstein, it might have been you, tell me if it was you, but when we were talking about, well, what happens if if Labor comes in? And in Anthony Albanese, certainly you have someone who's much more alive to these issues. They have Tanya Plibersek, probably she's at least shadow minister for women at the moment, very alive to these issues and very strategic. So, you know, if you have Labor come in, the problem becomes how do they have the courage to do what they know is right Mm. with the Morrison government. And this is not true of all liberal governments, but it is true of the Morrison government. It's how can you put so much pressure that there is no choice but for them to move. Mm. And so the Kate Jenkins inquiry that's just come out today, as you you referenced, there was so much pressure that they, they virtually had no choice. So there are some things they've had to move on, Mm. but in terms of actually taking this moment and, and doing something that would change Australia, he's not the guy. Yep. <clears throat> well, as a generic statement, that's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in the book, uh, in the essay, you, you write about the employment of language um, to obscure the issue of men's violence against women and how terms like violence against women and women's safety summit have a, have, you know, there's, there's something missing from them, either you know, men, and how the Me Too movement, one of the, the impacts of it was to put the perpetrators back uh, into the, the beginning of the sentence. Um, can you um, talk a bit about that? Yeah. The impulse that I had to, I tweeted just to, um, around the Women's Safety Summit, citing Jackson Katz, who who's, does a lot of work on men's violence against women and speaking particularly to men. And he he does this sort of construction where he breaks down these sort of like five sentences and shows how from the perpetrator being at the start of the sentence, we gradually move him down the line until he's moved out entirely. So it sort of goes, John beat Mary. And for me, that's a men's violence summit, right, where we're looking at John in the foreground and we're thinking about why does John beat Mary? What can we do to stop John beating Mary? And what are we already doing that we could do differently? Mary was beaten by John. That's still a reasonable sentence. You know, we still have the perpetrator there. Mary was beaten. Okay, so there's still an action. Someone's doing it. Mary was battered. It's becoming much more amorphous until finally Mary is a battered woman. And for me, that's a women's safety summit. Who does the battering? No idea. She's just she's just emerged as a woman experiencing abuse. I know p- personally when I was writing the book, I once I sort of became familiar with the work of Jackson Katz and could see how instinctively we go to hide the perpetrator from view, every time I put it him back in the front of the sentence felt like a political act and it also often made me catch my breath. It made me uncomfortable, made me a little bit sweaty, you know, because mm. it felt dangerous mm. and I can't explain why except that it suddenly felt from, from being safe and we're in the, in the realm of victims, suddenly when you put the man back at the front of the sentence, now you're out on the edge. Now you're confronting power. I think what's been incredible about Me Too is that it was really interesting to research the sort of history of consciousness-raising movements and to go, okay, well, so what's different about this one? Why did it catch fire? 
Was it just a timing issue? What was the different facet to it? And for me, obviously, there's a combination of timing, Trump obviously being a, a, a big part of that, which kind of created the conditions for the Weinstein expose, I think, largely. But I think also it was the fact that, unlike any other consciousness-raising movement, women were pointing the finger and men were pointing the finger at the men who had done them harm and at the systems who had protected them, protected the men who had done them harm. And it was like it stopped being just a conversation among women mm. and, that, and it made it an accountability movement rather than just a consciousness-raising movement. And mm. that's what made it so different from everything that had come before and what gave it this supercharged fire and it's really interesting, I guess, you know, how that then plays out. What do we prioritise as as the what we're trying to achieve with the movement? What's useful? What isn't useful in maintaining that fire? But that's that's certainly how it how it emerged. Yeah, I, I think it, I, mean, I find that fascinating. It's such a kind of deep part of the the equation. That understanding that you know the relative places of men and women in the equation of sexual violence and and how we as a society respond to that and and the way that language is employed as part of that I, I, one of the things I, you know I looked at in my own book is is the um is how the crime of rape is constructed as as an act of sex without consent where consent forms part of the physical act and is only known within the confines of the brain of the victim. It's never occurred to us to frame rape as a crime which is defined as sex without consent, without ascertaining consent, to put it all back where it actually belongs, which is in the hands of the perpetrator. We push the perpetrator out of the equation as much as possible and then the other thing that that um, that I find constantly perplexing, and this you know this just comes straight from the data, there is this weirdness about male perpetrated sexual violence against women that we all know female survivors, and almost none of us know male perpetrators. And because of that, every time a man is accused of rape, there is this cognitive dissonance which occurs and the benefit of the doubt that goes to the man who's been accused is wider than the ocean. But on the numbers, we know that every time we walk down the street, we're walking past rapists. And we all, and we know on the numbers that we all know rapists. We just don't know who they are and we don't accept that that's right. But we do accept that we all know survivors. And I guess my question is, you know, how do we how do we start to to address that and move the conversation to a more factually realistic plane? You know, to get away from this idiotic sort of you know dichotomy where there are survivors everywhere and no perpetrators. Yeah, and you know how how does a term like rape capture the vast spectrum of experience that can exist? You know, within that crime, from a, a, a husband sort of forcing himself on his on his wife when she's asleep, all the way through to someone being jumped on in a dark alley. You know, I know that Jermaine Greer's book on rape was very controversial, and there were some unhelpful elements in there, as there always is with Jermaine. God love her, but. I think that she was right in 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 talking about like the effect of rape is 
often severe and dramatic, but the act of rape is unfortunately almost normal, you know, in, in its prevalence. Because think of it as this like incredibly dramatic crime, which most of us think of as happening between strangers. It's like we we aren't able to fully conceptualise how men we would know would do that Mm. because, you know, classic monster myth stuff around that. There's been so much work to try to contest that and show all the various sides of rape and sexual violence. Two things perhaps have been the kind of the water that tips the bucket over in the last few years that that just come to mind for me. Others would have other suggestions. Um, Obviously, the Chanel Contos petition showed, as she said, what a rape culture we live in and that rape had become like sexual assault at the least had become the norm at student parties on the weekends Mm -hmm. and perpetrated sometimes by acquaintances, sometimes by strangers, but sometimes by the women's close friends, like close male friends, um, and sometimes covered up by women who were at the event as well as men who, who know in their bones that you've got to make that sexual violence go away. You know, it's just, it's a truly Australian condition to erase sexual violence um, from, from public knowledge. And, and it dates back to colonisation and, and back to Britain before that. Um, but I think the other, the second thing that was really important was the Aziz Ansari story that came out very soon after Me Too went viral. And it's not a story of rape. It's a story of gross sexual coercion. It's a story that the woman who experienced it said felt like assault, whether or not it would meet the criminal standard, I think had attracted a lot of debate and which was probably largely unhelpful. But funnily enough, guys who weren't just defensive and blocking that whole story, um, annoyed that it it ever got told, feeling how unfair it was for Aziz Ansari that this private consensual night was now being blasted across the world. Um, But I think the fact that you had these vastly different worlds come into contact with each other, Aziz Ansari, they're thinking that I'm just going to turn this no into a yes, Um, to quote Shana Premna, who who has, you know, many quotable quotes um, from NRAPE on campus, um, you know, that, that, some men have a salesman approach to sex um, and that's sort of what he was doing. It's what a lot of men have been socialised into is that's what you've got to do. You've got to succeed so you just keep coaxing. Um, and even if the coaxing kind of is a bit uncomfortable, eventually she'll come round. So that was where he was sitting, not thinking that this was a harmful experience at all. And over here, Grace is thinking, I basically have had the worst night of my life and I feel like I've been assaulted. And for a lot of guys, they looked at Aziz Ansari and they're like, I've done that. Mm. And the fact that it was so detailed, like blow by blow account, I think a lot of guys were able to inhabit that and just notice, wow, I have definitely gone beyond what what we really should understand as consent. And a number of guys talked publicly about the fact that they thought if if she hadn't said no quite strongly, if she had just sort of allowed me to steamroll her, I may have actually committed rape. Hmm. 
So funnily enough, like the story that everyone said, this is going to derail the movement, that Me Too has jumped the shark, this is so outrageous, I feel like that grey area spoke more to men than any of the Weinstein stuff did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I agree completely. Having a conversation with a publisher today who's looking at a very complex story where consent um, is very much an issue and there are very much two sides to this particular allegation story and, you know, they're trying to work out how to tell the story and whether they should and, you know, I was saying to them, you know, this is where we need to go. We need to start. We need to start exploring the messier, more complex dynamics of this. Because yeah, if we if we only ever stay up at the level of either you know the sort of your monster rapist or the the Weinstein type thing, and we you know we stick away from um, intimate relationship rape and and you know all of that messy complexity, then yeah, we stay in this dichotomy where. Yeah, we don't want to acknowledge that anyone is a rapist because the consequence of that is so horrific. Mm, mm. It, it's a very binary thing. Mm. Um, and, and you are forever a rapist. Yes. That's, and that's what, I mean, I think that, and again, a, a really controversial and, and pre-Me Too um, conveyance of this was um, the kind of, not about forgiving your rapist, but it was like it was where the um, former girlfriend and, and um, boyfriend went on stage. Um, I think her name was Elva, but I, I, it's escaping me now, but the, the man's name was Tom Stranger. And they went on stage and talked about what it was for there to be rape in their relationship that he had committed and, and what it was to confront that as mm. two people and she she clearly it was not about her forgiving him or absolving him. It was about having a conversation in public about it. Mm. Um, I don't think I certainly when they toured it in Australia, the opprobrium from the audience and particularly towards obviously towards Tom was like, you know, are you profiting from this? And and reasonable questions, you know, reasonable like what's your deal here? What's your mm. agenda? Um, having spoken to him years later, like I'm I'm pretty certain. His, his agenda was actually just to have this public conversation mm. that he had been shocked by his own behaviour. Mm. Um, and that's the thing. A lot of guys are, are being socialised into a kind of sexuality that says, like, take what you can. Mm. Um, and plenty of guys will maintain a sense of themselves as a decent person by, by just staying slightly over to the side of rape but slipping over and I'm not suggesting it's an accident but taking advantage of that moment and just going that bit further Mm. um, can be something that they only reckon with afterwards where they just like use that entitled position in the moment think it's going to be okay or don't care don't just don't think about it Um, they may totally objectify the woman that they're doing it to Um, but later there, I think for some guys who have some self-insight, there can be, a, a um, yeah, a, a real split and a, and a realisation that that is, like, not the person I thought I was and yet I did that. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I think there's got to be some way without, without diluting the seriousness of rape and sexual assault 
of being of uh, we've got to decide, I guess, and there's no one to decide for us. There's no leader to this movement, so it's kind of got to be about community consensus. You know, do you ever let men come back from this? Like, and that was a big question with me too. It was like, uh, like Louis C.K. Right, masturbating in ways that are thoroughly inappropriate and intimidatory. Um, he came out and apologized. Now, was that strategic? Was it well meant? Oh. I don't know, everyone will have a different opinion about that depending on whether you like the guy or not or what you think about sexual assault. But there was a lot of talk about if these men were able to rehabilitate their careers, even if it was a year or two sort of off stage or out of public life and then they came back, um, there was a sense that that was, that was a failure of the movement to probably hold them accountable. So the question is what, like, and I don't know the answer to this, I'm literally posing it as a question, do we expect that they be exiled for life, mm. public life? Mm. What level of crime would justify that type of exile? And how do we make that decision as a community? You know, um, and it's not really our decision to make. Like they're going to come back anyway regardless of whether what we think. But, you know, what what do we think is the right thing? What is the ethics around this? And I think that's still very shaky I don't know where I sit with it. Quite yeah, it's a hard question. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I found fascinating um, was your description in the essay of your own experience of um, really pretty gross sexual harassment as a as a young woman, um, or you know, just starting out a new career. There was a line, you know, just after this, your boss propositioned you in, in a really appalling way you said um this is what you were you were thinking you know, i don't want this but my discomfort is secondary his comfort is primary look after him first you can wait i can't shame him i'm the keeper of this secret now um which reminded me of a, a passage from my book um, which was a quote um, from one of the women who, whose story I related. She was a, a rape survivor, and that was in, in the context of an inti intimate relationship uh, over, over an extended period, multiple rapes. But she she was talking about what she had um, wanted from the um, in terms of a resolution. But she, she made the comment, she said, I felt I was keeping his secret. And that was really key to her letting that go and putting it back on him, handing his shame back to him as she described it. I find it's really interesting, this idea of, and you go on to talk a bit, you know, in, in detail about this, this thing of, you know, women keeping men's secrets as such a powerful force, presumably learned, I guess. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm really interested in, in how you see that, the significance of that. So I think that... You know, we all grow up with, like, our culture socialises us with the idea that a man's reputation is is as important as his life. Like, a woman's reputation can always be attached to a man. That's the classic sort of patriarchal idea, you know. Like, if you lose your reputation as a woman, don't worry, you'll hitch your wagon to another man and you'll be fine. Um Whereas a man stands alone, you know, the idea of the sort of, like, lone autonomous unit and to destroy a man's reputation it's almost like socially tantamount to killing him, you know, mm. that, like there's, so that's one part of it. But I also think that women, and this is, this is 
such a vexed part of me too because in the end women and men need each other whether they're intimate with each other or whether they're fathers and daughters or brothers and sisters you know but uh, what women can often see in men is the sort of boy in them that has like for want of a better term like lost his way or can't connect properly they see like I think too often like a, a possibility for redemption and to come out and shame them, to even put their shame in their face, like in that moment where I'm, you know, my boss is coming and saying like, um, you know, when you first walked into my office, your breast spoke to me. Like that's a that's a disgusting thing to say. It's not even a good come online. You know what I mean? Like it, regardless of whether he's my boss, it's just gross. Um, but in that moment I'm thinking don't even, don't even reflect back to him how gross he's just been. Like protect him from his own reputational damage internally, let alone what the public knows about him. Um, I, I just think there's this sense that women, A, can struggle to make sense of what's going on and the fact that like there's something quite in, possibly quite intentional happening to them, that they are being objectified or they are being harmed on purpose in a lot of cases, um, or recklessly, I think, in the in my case. Um, and then they think, okay, well, it's just not possible for him to be the one that takes responsibility for this, so it has to be me. And the way that I take responsibility is I just shush about it, you know. But when you shush, <laughs> you own it then. They don't have to reckon with it. Because you're not, you're not making them do that. And no one else is going to make them do that unless there's witnesses. Mm. Um, and even then. So when you have to eat that secret and mind it and keep it, I think it disfigures us at a certain level. Um, and I noticed like when I started writing this essay, and it was never going to be the opening, but that incident, which I'd always thought of as harassment but relatively minor suddenly was to me the thing that had to open the essay but the reason that was was because like I I needed to in in the writing process I needed to purge it out I sat at this desk for an hour and sobbed my heart out about that episode not because I felt unsafe but because of the shame that I'd carried and because it was the moment that I crossed over from feeling like someone who was equal to everybody else to someone who um, was othered and, and could have their sexuality become their defining characteristic in a way that was totally non-consensual, you know, um, yeah. and, and where none of my talent or my hard work would mean anything in that moment. It would just be about what I could offer sexually. That was just so dehumanising. And I think that that's that's really what women are doing with me too is they're claiming back their humanity and just saying you don't get the right to disfigure me with your actions. Like I'm just not going to bite down on this anymore. You are. You're going to bite down on it. And if you suffer consequences that feel unfair, well, I've suffered those for years and I can tell you how unfair that was. I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I, I still found it interesting that you, having told your story, you then said, mine is not a horror story, it's ordinary. And I think, well, yes, it is a horror story, 
or if it is ordinary, well, that's a horror story. The whole thing's but, a horror story. Yeah, <laughs> that, that is that, that is ordinary. Um, you know, and, and I think that's from a male perspective um, with no personal experience of, you know, of my gender having ever been a problem for me in any respect. Um, you know, it's so hard to access um, what it actually is like going through life with that experience that pretty much, you know, I don't know any women who haven't been subjected to sexual harassment, but it doesn't mean I can, you know, walk in their shoes or really understand what that means. I can only know it cognitively. Um, getting men around to get some sense of the enormity of this um, of this horror show um, that just perpetuates generation after generation seems to me to be, you know, such a critical need. You wrote about the um, what happened with the High Court and Dyson Hayden being, you know, investigated and the example that Susan Kiefel, the Chief Justice, set in that instance, in, that, in the way that she handled the allegations, you know, sent them straight out for an investigation. But then more importantly, when the findings came back, she came out with a direct and clear statement of belief in the victims, an acknowledgement of fault and an apology to them. Not reserved, not qualified, it was straight up. You know, I think when that happened, a lot of us expected that to have a very wide impact because of the position of the High Court. And I'm just wondering whether you think the refusal of the federal government, which is sort of, you know, the other highest pillar, its refusal to do anything serious about its own responsibility, whether that's having a kind of equal, you know, countervailing effect mm -hmm. and by giving perpetrators and institutions cover to just continue doing nothing? So I think it's probably both. I think it's it's definitely if you had a federal government who was, like, pursuing that same kind of integrity that Kiefel is for its institution, that would inevitably have an enormous effect on corporate mm. Australia, on, on the various arms of public service. Um, however, in the absence of that, like corporate Australia does often go out ahead of government and and change because they see that it's going to, you know, assist productivity and be better for their work, you know, it'd be better for them um, in the end, you know, not, not necessarily from altruistic um, means but, you know, from self, a self-interested position. Um, so I think that there's quite a lot happening without the leadership of the federal government but it's sort of like climate change right like corporates have to a certain extent you know made their own advances around emissions or changing their practices because you know they can see the tide turning they know what's coming um and it would it's just irresponsible to act like the federal government um, <laughs> um to their shareholders but do they have to go that extra mile to do things that are uncomfortable? No, you know, so they just do it within the remit of what, what is basically comfortable, what they can do without having to sacrifice too much. Mm -hmm. um, the courts, I think, are slightly different because the Chief Justice of the Federal Circuit Court and now the, you know, the merged family court, William Olstergren, the fact that he not only 
held a an inquiry into one of his own judges, Joe Harmon, um, but also went public once that was substantiated by that inquiry and used very similar language to Susan Kiefel that it's they were ashamed that it had happened in this court, etc. That was um, that was for me a real switch because William Ulstergren was appointed by Christian Porter. He's not just some natural ally of the Me Too movement. So he's noticed a um, there is a change in the expectation of what the courts are supposed to do, and Susan Kiefel has said that. So I think inside the courts, you know, as Josh Bornstein has said, there's like there's a cultural revolution going on, but it's quite contained. And you know, in um, in legal firms and in in the in the other parts of the you know legal profession that service the courts, it's very patchy still um, and very dependent. I think on personalities within those firms deciding whether or not to take this on. Um, and broadly across corporate Australia, look. I don't think until we get that positive duty with respect at work and until we make sexual harassment, um, the onus on preventing it, just like we have an onus on preventing workplace injuries and work and deaths in the workplace and, and, you know, all that stuff that wasn't so uncommon in the 19th and 20th century before the unions fought to change the paradigm, until we make sexual harassment something employers have to prevent I don't think we're going to see anything massive change. So that's, and that's what the Morrison government is holding out on. Yep. Um, I've just got time for one last question. Um, what, one of the big themes in, in the essay um, is about the sort of, you know, confusion between the two limbs of the Me Too movement, the, um, the you know this sort of serial outing of of um, high profile male predators on the one hand, but the the much longer term harder work um, of the campaign that Tarana Burke started you know the real Me Too movement which is about systemic um, and societal change um, and how those two have sort of been running in parallel and frequent you know frequently confused. Um, how do you see that developing sort of from here? Mm, great question. Yeah, and I think Tarana's work was um, about structural change, but it was also about healing mm. and about community. I think what we saw with Me Too, and this is what she panicked about, you know, when she saw it go live um, and remembering that it was quite detached from her movement. It was really a coincidence mm. that, well, we don't know why um, some friend texted Alyssa Milano to say use the term Me Too. Maybe that person had heard it from Tarana Burke. It's possible. Um, but it certainly had, there was no connection between the two except for the very powerful phrase and the way that it was used. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the fact that that was a very much a Weinstein moment the whole hashtag Me Too thing set a wine was from the Weinstein frame exposed the omnipotent, powerful perpetrators who have, you know, usually perpetrated against dozens of women from a place of power. Um, that was the whole framework for Me Too, but it was quite isolating for a lot of the women who either came forward of their own volition or were outed for you know, political purposes or for, you know, self-interested purposes, as happens so often in Australia. So these women, you know, very different to what Tirana was trying to start, you know, and, and, and had been starting from 2007 onwards, they often did not enter some kind of like healing sisterhood 
They were put on the front page of newspapers, hung out to dry. Many of them felt like they needed to go into hiding. And certainly Tessa Sullivan, who I talk about um, in, in the essay, you know, she felt in 2017 when she was the first political staffer to come out and allege against her then boss, the Lord Mayor of Melbourne, you know, she was utterly alone and she was set upon by the powerful men of Melbourne who wanted to protect their mate. And one of the most beautiful things that's come out of this essay and what I think is emerging, hopefully, and this will take work and it is being worked on, is more of that Tarana Burke model, which is we're not going to make you go through this alone. We're going to offer you solidarity. I think we've seen an enormous amount of solidarity with Brittany Higgins, with Grace Tame. At the end of the day, when they go to bed at night, they are alone, but they have an, they have enormous public support. Um, what Tessa has experienced through having her story re- revealed again years later is just this wave of support that she never had. And she's messaged me several times just saying, this is like I feel as close to a type of closure as I've felt since this happened. Um, she just can't believe it. She can't believe that she that her story has been told the way that it felt to her, which was that it was not just the abuse of one man but the abuse of a system, um, and that people are hearing it and seeing how reprehensible it was. Um, that's... I think as much as accountability is important and as much as it's important to out people who are serial perpetrators and creating enormous levels of harm um, and in culture-defining positions like the judiciary or in entertainment or, or other powerful positions, that healing for victim survivors has also got to be a central part of our mission and that, you know, as much as there's public solidarity and support for Brittany and Grace and Chanel, that we can tip over into enormous expectation that they fix all the problems and that if, that them having to re-prosecute their trauma, retell their story, that it's all for the good, you know, forgetting that they are human beings. So this is, I guess, we're trying to do something that's un- unusual, which is trying to take something that usually happens at the grassroots and bring it out to the macro. Um, that's very difficult and messy. But that's, I sort of feel like that's where the project is going. Mm, I hope so. There's a, there is actually a lot of, a lot of hope in, in your essay. I, you know, I think um, between, between the lines and, and, you know, in your ultimate conclusions um, that we are winning. Um, it's not linear progress, but we are making progress. Uh, it's a great point to end on. Thank you so much for answering my questions and um, sharing all of that with us um, to the audience. I certainly urge you have a read of this. Um, this this essay is an epic and um, really worth digging into. So I'll hand back to Christine. Thank you, Michael. Well, thank you, Jess. Thank you for being an activist for us out there. We appreciate it. And to you, Michael, I want to tell you what happened while you were talking with Jess. The audience was sending me questions, were comments, and they're all saying how terrific you were, Michael, asking those questions. They're all commenting on the kindness that you showed and the knowledge that you showed, but mainly they were talking about the respect. So thank you on behalf of everybody that's listened and on behalf of all of us out there that are 
just working as hard as we can. To you, Jess, please keep going, keep writing. And to all of those that are listening here or watching, I need you all to go out and buy that essay. Even if you've read it, you need to give it to someone else or you need to leave it in a public place so that someone can just pick it up and chance upon it, chance upon the reckoning. Thank you so much, everyone. Keep reading. Good night, everyone. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website. We'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production for this podcast was by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.